from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. When Leonard Slatkin was here for our conversation, I asked a question that he answered, but he didn't answer all the way, and the conversation then took a digression. And after the show was over, I found myself wanting to know a bit more. And so we circled back, and we have that for you here today. So, Leonard, I want to go back to this essay that you wrote for Slip Disc because I, I found this very interesting. And you talk in that in there about how the American-born conductor is really something that's going away in our biggest and best orchestras. It was interesting. In your book, you talk about how it was also a relatively recent phenomenon that we even had these American-born composers. This didn't happen until 1958 uh, right. with Leonard Bernstein. That's right. What took so long for an American conductor to, to hit one of these big five? When you go back and look at the history of music in this country, it really starts symphonically at the end of the 19th century. But they were all immigrants, the conductors, the composers. We didn't have a lot of American music for the concert hall. That took us to the time of Charles Ives, who became the first classical composer. One could argue that Scott Joplin and so many other people were contributing to music, but it was going in a different path. The concert hall was populated primarily by musicians as well, not just conductors. The whole orchestras were made up of people who came from Russia, from Germany, France, whatever. And this lasted for a long time. Orchestras were also led by boards of directors who loved to delve to their past, their mm. heritage. So we saw German conductors, Russian conductors, whatever. And composers would go to Europe to study, in particular to with Nadia Boulanger in Paris. But conductors didn't have a place to go. They had to just kind of wend their way up the ladder. Chart your own path. As it were. Uh, Bernstein was already well known as a composer and as a conductor. He was actually offered the Boston Symphony, but that was withdrawn because they were afraid of having a gay conductor. Mm -hmm. They didn't want that. But New York, because Bernstein was so New York and so much ingrained in the city and the culture, he was exactly the right person. He'd already established himself as a television communicator, uh, writer for Broadway, West Side Story had already been written before he was near the New York Philharmonic. So he was the first one. And he paved the way for people like me and all the other American conductors of what we would say was the next generation. And, and you broke that barrier here in St. Louis. Well, there was no American conductor before me, the same as it was in Detroit. In most places, most of us were the first ones, those conductors from the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And we'd hoped that there would be a continued advance for conductors who were from here. Now, mind you, I'm not saying that I'm critical of any places that don't choose Americans. It's not the places. They have to go with who they think is best. It's just oddly coincidental that we don't have any now. Uh, we'll see what happens. There's another barrier, of course, that's coming, and we will see. There are several vacancies in conductors. We're going to be looking to see, will Americans get these jobs? Will a woman finally break that glass ceiling? I mean, is this maybe what's holding back women or holding back people who don't have, uh, who aren't white? 
that these or, these orchestras are looking for somebody with that European pedigree, and there's not a homegrown path. To no, get it's there. not just the European one. We do see conductors coming from the Latin community. We see several coming from the Asian community. So it's not a color issue for those colors, but we still haven't had an African-American or black conductor assume a major post. We have a couple who are in the next rank Mm -hmm. and who are very good. But it's a question of that one person, who's going to be the one who comes and gets the job at the New York Philharmonic or the Chicago Symphony or one of those where a real message can be sent and can it be done by saying this was the best person for the job. That's going to be the trick. And is this a matter of the orchestra needing the boldness to choose this person or is it also a matter of orchestras being able to help people build those kind of careers back as you described being able to do in the, back in the day? A, a little of each actually. You need to have, I think, a, a better pipeline of feeding from internally within the orchestra. We do it with orchestra members that often somebody is able to be advanced in the orchestra either to a position or to move ahead in salaries, so we do that. But we don't seem to want to do it with the conductors. Hmm. Communities are are ready for this. I think they're looking for somebody who's going to say, I'm part of you. I was one of the last people who lived in the city where I had my orchestra. Today, most music directors only do about maybe 12 to 16 weeks of the season. The season is now 52 weeks for many orchestras, some 40, but they're doing less than half. And they have two or three orchestras. They travel a lot. Their homes tend not to be in the place where they have their major orchestra. And does that make it harder to know what to pick for the community, how to play it and what to play? Sure. And what it tells you is that more of the leadership today is being decided not by the music director, but by advisors to the music director or the administrators in the orchestra itself. It's a a little frightening to me that music directors do not have the authority and control over repertoire that they used to have. When I was here, yes, we would all meet and say, let's do this, let's do this, but it was always something where I was the catalyst for it, as it was with so many other conductors. Today, it's more of a corporate mentality. What's going to be the best for everybody decided by everybody, including the members of the orchestra? And I think that's just part of the change that we're seeing. Do you think that leads to less innovation? You know, you're having to do it sort of by committee. Well, whenever it's a, it's a big group, it's going to be, let's play it safe. Mm-hmm. You know, it's going to be something where people are a little frightened to move into a direction they haven't done because they don't know what's going to happen. But I think that's the excitement of it. We don't know what's going to happen. Let's take the chance. And again, going back to something we've talked about, if you couch a lot of this under the umbrella of education, which can be very big, you can call anything educational, but if you do that, you have a better opportunity of opening up the purse strings. People are really anxious to give what money they have to projects which build up not just young people, but education for others as well. Think of all the people now who've grown up without that kind of musical background, arts background, 
in their lives, probably almost three generations now, where it's been deteriorating. But what if you organized a whole series, which was about bringing people more in touch with what it's about? What about combining the different art forms? I noticed that this week the symphony here is going to combine dance with a new piece uh, with its music. That's a good, bold gesture for an opening night, something different, not just the straight-out overture concerto symphony, something a little different. So the boldness may scare the administrators a little bit, but you feel like it actually might be the answer to a lot of their problems. I do. I think that's going to be the case for every arts institution. We need to rely, of course, on the great works of art that have gotten to this point. But it's all about the special exhibitions, isn't it? If we go to the Metropolitan Museum or the St. Louis Art Museum, what are they advertising out there? What the exhibition is going to be, the thing that's different from the standard collection. That's what they're using to draw people in. It has to be the same for performing arts. So I have to ask you, last question here today, St. Louis Symphony Orchestra, do you feel like this is a message that they need to hear? Is it a message they're ready to hear? I think they're starting to move in that direction. They're looking at many ideas that are potentially innovative. I think Stefan, who I know very well, and I, I love him, I think he's great, was the right choice. Uh, I think he's willing to really get involved more in the community itself. He's ingratiated himself to all the right people. And now it's time that we're opening up for him to be really in the community. So sadly, I won't be here next week. So I wanted to go to a ball game with him. I really wanted to say, you're going to learn about this sport, <laughs> everything you need to know. We're going to go and we're going to have a ball, but uh, it's not going to work this time. But I'll go to his concert anyway this week. <laughs> You'll go to his concert maybe next year. Maybe take next him to year. a baseball game. Yeah. Well, Leonard Slatkin, uh, thank you for sharing these additional thoughts. My pleasure. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. This episode was produced by Sarah Fenske, with audio engineering by Aaron Dorr and podcast design by Emily Woodbury. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com.